following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Every car comes with its share of stories. How about that ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up your first date? Or the luxury package you got after a big promotion? Or how about the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer long? While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car's worth is when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to True Car, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then just answer a few questions like navigation moonroof, and watch as they bump up your value. High mileage, you already know it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. And once you're finished, you can get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True cash offer, not available in all areas. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started, because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. All right, here we go. No Excuses Podcast for February 4th, 2019. And before you even get going, again, please make sure you hit subscribe at Apple Podcast or go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app, and you'll get your new episodes every Tuesday morning. And this week, I'm pretty excited. I have a, a Las Vegas legend, actually, who moved here from England, Piff, the Magic Dragon, is my guest today. It was a fascinating story. He's now a headliner. Uh, uh, in his residency in Las Vegas, I got great audience calls today, like post-holiday calls, which are pretty darn exciting. And, of course, as always, I want to thank my sponsors, MyPillow, Quicken Loans, BetDSI, the Robinhood app, and TrueCar. So, question. I know a lot of us watched the Super Bowl. I know a lot of us fell asleep during the Super Bowl. It's funny. We probably just should have watched the last quarter. But I was thinking about the business of Super Bowl. And, you know... Corey, I don't know if you know this, but the, the largest day of the year for selling pizzas, of course, is Super Bowl Sunday. Oh, yeah. So pizzas, chicken wings, obviously bars, restaurants filled all over the country. It's a huge moneymaker. And it's an asset when you think about the restaurant, bar business, pizza, all these industries that make so much money off the Super Bowl. It's an asset. And it's a driver of so many businesses. And I wanted to pick apart some of those numbers because I thought it was really, really interesting. First of all, we know that the overall ratings for NFL have been going down the past few years. And there was some discussion that, you know, maybe this year ratings would reverse. Well, they didn't. Ratings went down another 5%, uh, which is starting to get of great concern. Ads cost $5 million bucks each, even though the ratings went down. And this is what really blew me away about the NFL. <laughs> this is going to shock you, Corey. What's that? So NFL Primetime, which is a very popular show, and yep. I'm going to give you cable ratings, not network ratings. So oh, okay. this isn't CBS, and this isn't the NFL uh, Super Bowl itself. But on the NFL Primetime show on ESPN, uh, uh, on Super Bowl Sunday, its ratings were 2,346,000 viewers. Not so bad, right? Yeah. Puppy Bowl on the Animal Channel 
had 3,046,000 viewers. It blew away NFL primetime. And here's what's fascinating. While the NFL Super Bowl ratings went down about 5%, the Puppy Bowl ratings went up 32 freaking percent. Well, it was probably more of an interesting game. I think it was an interesting game, and it says something for puppies. But I thought that number was just astonishing. And, you know, you look at the NFL and the intensity of the game, and look, as one who used to work with the NFL and had the honor to work on Sunday tickets so many years ago, and I also won Sports Bar Operator of the Year. So I think that qualifies me to speak a little bit about NFL. One of the most valuable assets that the NFL has, and this can relate to so many other businesses, is the fact that it has so few games. When you compare it to hockey with 80-some-odd games and you compare it to baseball with 160 or whatever amount of games they have these days and the NBA with all the games they have, there's so many games in those leagues that, you know, a few games doesn't not much matter. You can miss the early part of the season, can't you, Corey? You can sort of drop out in the middle. As long as you come in in the end in the playoffs, you're cool, right? Oh, yeah. I'm freaking out when hockey's not on TV. So, So... Football, there's only 17, 18, 19 games a year. Every game is so freaking important that that becomes the asset of the NFL, is the critical importance to every game. And every game is not as important in any other league as it is the NFL. But when we look at how the NFL uh, uh, impacts America, of course, it has huge diehard fans. But this is fascinating. And this was a, a research study done just recently. And this is on the NFL, a men and women poll. And it says, quote, how many of you are not at all in any way interested in the NFL? 34% of men said they have absolutely no interest in the NFL. 47% of women said they had absolutely no interest in the NFL. So when you think about it, the NFL has 34% of America that does not engage, does not watch, does not buy, really has no involvement. The next category was, you know, how many of you are engaged or watch the NFL or care about it just a little? Well, 16% of men said just a little. 19% of women said just a little. Then the next one was, how many of you are somewhat engaged? You're not 20, 30% of the league, you know, but you are engaged more than just a little. 25% of men, 19% of women. And how many men in America do you think have a top interest in the NFL? This is really, really important. One of the most important aspects of their lives, 22%. That's wow. it. That's it? That's it. So 22% of men call it a top interest, 25 somewhat, 16 a little, and 34% not at all. And women who call the NFL a top interest, something very important to them, is 11%, which is half of men at 22%. So it's fascinating. So not all of America jumps into the NFL, is engaged in the NFL, and it just... Interesting to keep these things in perspective that the NFL could achieve the level of dominance and impact that it has with only 22% of the male audience calling it a top interest. So I thought that was sort of fascinating. Yeah, very fascinating. Comparatively, the NBA is kicking ass, unlike the NFL, which is really sort of having some issues. According to Forbes magazine, Last NBA season was the best season in the entire 72-year history of the NBA. So there's a huge comparison. Let's go over to baseball for a minute. You know, last year we had the Dodgers-Red Sox 
World Series, right? Yeah. Two major markets, Los Angeles and Boston, should be huge numbers. Nope. Ratings are off 27%. Jeez. And that's in two great markets, L.A. and Boston. And then we take a look at baseball. Attendance in stadiums has dropped 4%. So I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but our two outdoor sports which are NFL and baseball, are both really, really struggling. But as soon as we go inside, Corey, and get into the NBA world, yeah, it all changes. So NBA is kicking butt. And then when we take a look at NHL, (laughs) NHL, listen to this. So last year, during the Stanley Cup playoffs, uh, uh, the Vegas Knights were playing uh, the Caps. I think it was game two, maybe game one, I'm not sure. And they were against the NBA playoff game, which was that night, I believe, game two of the NBA playoffs. And the NHL had some of the highest rating scores in years. So NHL numbers went up. Now, the Vegas story clearly had something to do with it, right? Yeah, I was going to add that in there. team, right, Vegas and, and everything. So that had something to do with it, uh, as in any year, stories like that can drive success, just like, you know, uh, uh, the Patriots created a little interest this year with their run. So my point is this. NHL, looking pretty good. Numbers are up. Viewership is up. Uh, uh, expansion is going on. Pretty healthy league. NBA doing pretty good. Healthy league as well. Ratings are up. Attendance is up. NFL, not so good. Numbers are down. Uh, 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 Political issues as well. You know, controversy in the league. And baseball is becoming a bit of a snore. So when we look at our society and we think of the pace of things, Corey, everything's faster, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Like hockey. It's just like hockey. Exactly right. So hockey, you know, I got I got a 20-minute period. It goes pretty quick, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. And then I got another 20-minute period. It goes pretty quick, and I can wait for that third one. So I got three 20-minute periods. I can count on it. It makes sense to me. Basketball, same deal, right? I got my quarters. I got my I – play, I play to the clock. It all makes sense to me. Right. Football, same deal. Makes sense to me. I understand the beginning, the end, the halftime. It all makes sense to me. Baseball just is something that has no clock. It goes at a pace that might be inconsistent with the pace of society. And, you know, that almost equates to our own businesses and our own lives. Think of when you're with somebody today who talks slow. You ever know anybody like that, Corey? Oh, yeah. It drives me nuts. And they talk sort of like this. And you're just waiting for the next word. You almost <laughs> want to smack them in the face and Get shake them. Get it out, man. Get <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, that's sort of baseball comparative when yeah. you look at it as compared to an NBA or even an NHL or even sometimes plays in football. So, you know, when we take a look at all of these leagues and the pressure of time and energy and tension and all of these things that media creates today, it puts a serious challenge uh, on all of these teams to, to maintain interest. But the big issue, I think, is going to be baseball. And when we look forward, how does baseball uh, uh, really keep its energy and increase its pace and can become as exciting as something that has the energy of a clock. And I learned that in Bar Rescue. You know, Corey, when I go to do Bar Rescue, and by the way, those of you who are curious about it, I want you to know Bar Rescue, I start shooting again next week. So I'm shooting 12 episodes next week. New episodes premiere, I believe, uh, in April. Uh, uh, And we have 10 that we haven't aired yet, so I'm making 12 more. So that's 22 new episodes coming in the next few months for Bar Rescue. But, you know, in Bar Rescue, I have four days, Corey. Just like in hockey, I have three periods or 60 minutes of play. That 
pressure of the clock adds a dimension to what I'm doing. Yeah, it that's creates, crazy you get all that done. It, but it creates this tension because there's this clock right. in my head all of the time. I can't take my time in bar rescue. So that pressure creates a tension that comes across in TV. If you said to me, ah, John, don't worry about it. You got a month to do it. It would be a very different television show without right. that pressure. I think the same is true with sports. If you put a clock in baseball, and you said, listen, this is how many in- this is how long you get to play for. If you can make it nine innings, God bless you. If it's six innings, so be it. But when this clock ticks, that's the end of the game. I wonder how that would change baseball. Oh, that would change it completely. So suddenly you're getting in a box really quick. You're swinging yeah. right away. The pitcher is no time. Things are moving really quickly. That clock is ticking. You know, If I hurry up, I can get another inning in. If I don't hurry up, I can't. Are they stalling the clock just like they would in hockey or basketball or football? It would be an entirely different game. So sometimes our enemy is the clock because things are faster than we want them to be. But sometimes our enemy is the clock because things are slower than we want them to be. How does that relate to you, I wonder? How does that relate to your personal life and your professional life? Do you move at the pace of your boss? Do you move at the pace that your business requires? Do you move at the pace that the marketplace demands? Or are you too slow? Or are you too fast? Do you leave people behind? Do you bore people along the way? You know, that's an interesting thought that maybe we can all think about a little bit. Years ago, I owned a patent which is expired because I don't use it anymore. And it was the first patent ever issued by the federal government for the control of music to create a desired ambiance in hospitality properties. That was the name of the patent. And that was a freaking nutcase. So I took 70,000 songs, Corey, actually about 77,000 songs, and we color-coded them in energy levels and music types and male vocalists and female vocalists and keys and beats per minute and all of these things. And then we created the science of music management. Wow. And this was many, many years ago before we had computers that did these things. Right. So we would put records back then, vinyl records, in, in special jackets that were color-coded. And we could teach a young DJ how to play music that sometimes was older than he or she was. So that was a concept of, we called it music plan back then. And the concept was you had a business plan, you have a marketing plan, you should have a music plan. So my point is that when we even looked at music management, if beats per minute were too fast... You fried, Corey. You were spent, man, so you went home early. You know what I mean? You ever had Oh, yeah. But if beats per minute were too low, you'd get bored, buddy, and you'd go home early. Right. So the pace of music, the pace of the way we talk, the pace of the way we walk is really important in life. And when we take a look at sports and what's happening in the sports world and how markets are reacting to it, it becomes even more evident. And I remember a couple years ago I was on Rachel Ray's show. And we talked about restaurants. And think about this for a second and how this relates to your entire life yourself. If the lights of a restaurant are bright, Corey, the prices tend to be pretty cheap, right? Yeah. If the waiter walks really fast from table to table, that's sort of like a Denny's right. or, a fr- or a Friday's. You can go really quick table to table in a really bright environment. They've got 10 too many customers, yep. So they're moving really quick in a really bright environment. Go to a fine steakhouse. The lights are dimmer. And the waiter walks slower, doesn't he? He does. If that waiter walked faster, that steak wouldn't be worth 60 bucks anymore, would it? Oh, yeah. So when you look at a restaurant environment and some other businesses, the slower the pace, the higher the price. 
the faster the pace, the lower the price. Oh, okay. So pace has a powerful subliminal impact upon everything in our lives. The way our bosses perceive us, the way our customers perceive us, the way our partners in life perceive us. So pace is critical. If it's too fast, Corey, you're screwed, aren't you? Yeah. If it's too slow, you're equally screwed, aren't you? Exactly. Got to find that middle ground. You have to. And, and, you know, that's, I think, the issue with baseball. And, you know, sometimes it's an issue for all of us. So pace is a really, really important part. Take a look at yours. You know, how's your pace? Do you go faster than your partner? Does that create pressure? Do you go slower? You know, what about people that work for you or work with you or you work for So take a look at pace. Maybe that's the message of our No Excuses podcast for this week. Let's assess our own pace. Do we need to do things quicker? Do we need to do things slower? Are we communicating properly? Or are we getting into baseball where there's no clock at all and it goes on and on and on and you almost can't wait sometimes to the end of the game? Interesting thoughts all derived from Super Bowl Sunday. Okay, with this week I have a guest who just fascinates me. Piff the Magic Dragon came from the United Kingdom as a headliner now in Las Vegas, and he puts on a dragon costume every night. And what caught my interest is sometimes I can be called an ass on TV. Corey, you've heard me called that on occasion. You can no. say it. Oh, you can say it, buddy. <laughs> All right, yeah. Well, well, Piff was called an ass as a comedian because he was very insulting to people. And one day he put on a dragon costume, and he realized you can be a much bigger ass when you're dressed as a dragon than you can when you're not. And hence, Piff, the magic dragon, was born. It's a great story. He's a really funny guy, and I got a feeling he's going to show me a trick or two and try to blow me away. So I will be right back in a minute with Piff, the magic dragon. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Hey, everybody, it's Laura Ingram, and this January I am launching my new show, The Laura Ingram Show Podcast, exclusively on Podcast One. So if you like my radio show, you're going to love joining me during the week as I cover politics, pop culture, and media bias. And don't worry, as always, I'm going to bring you hard-hitting guests and take your calls. Subscribe today and download new episodes starting January exclusively on podcastone.com. The podcast one app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. So I want to tell you all a funny story. I went to see a comedy show here in Las Vegas or a magic show. I'm not quite sure what it was. And I saw an entertainer by the name of Piff the Magic Dragon and it completely blew me away. And here's why. Not only was he funny, not only was it great magic, but the costuming, the branding, the depth of thought that went into the branding of this comedian magician, the show, blew me away as a branding professional. So, Piff, I have been trying to get you on my show now for weeks, and I'm thrilled to have with me, folks, Piff the Magic Dragon, who's in residency here in Las Vegas at the Flamingo. So we're we're neighbors. We're both local We're neighbors, yeah. We're locals, locals to Las Vegas. And I can tell by your accent that you're local Las Vegas guy. Yeah, you can hear my Las Vegas twang. That, that's what it is, a Las yeah, Vegas twang. Yeah, that's what it is. So for everybody to know, Piff comes from England and came up uh, uh, to be a magician. You wanted to be a magician at a young age. I did. 12 or so, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, well, a, bit, a little bit older, maybe 14. And I saw these, and I always grew up hating magic, never really got into it. And then I saw these people doing close-up magic, card tricks, and they were all like... Uh, being funny as well while they were doing magic and I was like oh this is what I want to do 
So you started doing it, and at a young age, you got recognized for your yeah. magic. Yeah, so I started doing it, and I like studied a lot when I was younger and learned how to be had to do all these, you know, really complicated card tricks. And, and so in magic circles, I started getting recognized for being able, you know, being good with the deck of cards. And, and, and what's amazing to me about magic, and I have a couple of other friends who are magicians who I have incredible respect for, the discipline is incredible. How, how long can it take you to develop one trick? Oh, two years. Easily two years. two years, yeah. Hours and hours of you alone, staring in mirrors, watching it, watching. It's incredibly disciplined. Yeah, well, often as well, the method doesn't even exist. If you, you know, if you come up with, if you, especially these days, I'm trying to think of the idea first. So, wouldn't it be funny if this happened? And then you have to come up with the method. How do you make, make it happen? How do you make? And then you have to get that method good enough to take on stage. And then you take on stage, people go, "We don't really care." You wow. Know. Then you got to move on to the next. Then one. you got to move on. <laughs> but it's like with a joke. If you have an idea for a joke, at least you can try it out that night. Right. You don't have and, to invest two years of your life right, into you can, the dark thing. You can see whether people are even remotely interested in it. Yeah. And then, if not, move on. But with magic, there's that initial period, which is pr- pretty brutal. So when you were growing up, your parents were concerned that, you know, there's not a lot of successful magicians out there. Yeah. You should get a straight job. <laughs> yes. They said I should get a – I should have a, a backup option. Yep. So um, you became an IT guy. Yeah. So I went to university to um, – study IT and I spent three years there and uh, and all I did was magic. So you were performing the entire yeah, time? Yeah, that's all I did. I was just like working in bars and restaurants doing magic tricks and then I came back, I got a job in IT and um, and then a couple of years into that I got sick with this thing called uh, chronic pancreatitis which usually you get from drinking. Mm. Usually you, you drink your way into that but I had it because of a... Um, you know, some sort of birth defect. I don't know what it was. It was like I was missing a tube somewhere. Okay. But what it meant was I got no hosp- no sympathy whenever I went to hospital because they all thought I'd done it to myself. Uh, so I was like, no. Of course, he's, he drank himself yeah, to I was like, guys, congenital defect. Congen- <laughs> I was like, give me a badge that says congenital defect. So I was in hospital and, um, and uh, you know, it was, it, was pretty, it was touch and go at one point, but... What I took out of it was that I was sort of, I, I was living this life as a, I was doing, I was following the backup as opposed to the what plan, really plan A. So you yeah. left that job. So I, so once I got out of hospital, then yeah, I left that job and I went to drama school to learn how to um, be on stage, I guess. So so I, I want to better understand, so the comedy took years. I mean, the magic took years to develop. Well, first of all, so I was doing magic. So then the drama took a long time to learn. Well, what happened was I was doing magic, but every time I would do magic, I would be making jokes. And uh, I could never really do the magic without making jokes. And the jokes are always uh, at the expense of uh, the people that I meet. Because when you're doing magic, you've never, when you're like taking part in a magic trick, you've never done this before. So it was easy to do something stupid like write your name on the wrong side of the card or. Right say something dumb, and I would just mercilessly ridicule that person. And as much as I tried to stop them, I couldn't. <laughs> and people would, and when you're uh, d- doing doing magic, it's kind of a, uh, it's almost a catering business. It's like you're doing weddings, bar mitzvahs, corporate dinners. Yep. You're not really in show business. Yeah. So that's what I was doing. So imagine hiring this guy for your wedding who comes and just like insults you for the, an hour and a half. So uh, I was losing 
all this work because I was too uh, too rude. The, the rude magician. Yeah, the sort of grumpy, <laughs> grumpy uh, uh, magician. Um, I was trying to say, well, I'm not sure whether we can curse on this. So. You can. Oh, well, then uh, basically it was a dickhead. I got it was you. a massive dickhead. So, um, you know, it's difficult to find that work. So then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to have to do something different with magic. So then I went to drama school. Uh, and how long did you go there for? For a year, I did a master's degree. So, so uh, uh, this was hard work. Years of creating trips, tricks for your magic. Then yeah. years of creating your comedy and your timing. And then you go to drama school, and, and, and you know you put all this effort into that. So now you have your magic skills, which you invested to get. Yeah. Your comedy skills, which you invested the time to get. Yeah. Your drama skills, which you invested the time to get. Yeah. And then what did you do? Well, I was still terrible at that point. So uh, terrible at what? Were you terrible at magic or comedy or all of it? All of it. Okay. Because it's like when you see a comedian, it takes like a comedian ten years to get good. Yeah. So how were you at this time? When you say you were terrible, then when you finished your drama school, I just don't think I was very good. How, no, what, how, what age were you? Oh, 24, 25. Okay. okay. Twenty five, maybe. Yeah. So, um, but the good thing was that I recognized that I wasn't very good because when you start out, especially as a magician, you're doing magic tricks. Look, I'll show you, I'll show, I'll show you this magic trick that I, um, it was one of the first ones I ever did. So I got a deck of cards here. I'm going to describe it and people are listening. So uh, quick question before you do. And, and, uh, so you have this passion to be a magician. Yeah. You're 24 years old, and you don't think you're very good at it. Yeah. But it's still your passion. Yeah. Well, and and so, also, here's the feedback. You ready? Yeah. Okay. So there's a deck of playing cards here. One of these cards is face down. You're going to name it. Okay. Off you go. Three of clubs. Now, do you want to stick with the three of clubs uh, or do you want it to work? Uh, what do you mean want it to work? Do you want to stick with the three of clubs? Yeah. <laughs> what do you want? That? You want to stick with the three of clubs? I'll stick with oh, the three wow. of clubs. In the so face. I want everybody to know what we're looking at here. So We're looking so at a deck. There's a, a bicycle deck of cards yeah. in the box. In the box. Sitting on my table. Yeah. So, so the box hasn't been opened. I'm picking a three of clubs right now. Yeah. I'm going to stay with my three of clubs, Piff. You're staying with it, which is uh, very, very disappointing to the Magic Dragon in the studio. Every single one of the cards, though, is face up except for one single playing card just here. Yeah. One... Single playing card. And I'd like you to slide that card out, please. Turn it over. Wow, it's the three of clubs. It's the three of clubs. Now. That's an incredible trick. So the box the, was closed when I said three of clubs. That is the best trick in magic. Unbelievable. It's like, it's like you named any playing card, and that single card is face down in the deck of cards. I didn't touch on the whole thing. Now, here's the thing. Now, was that the one you did on Penn & Teller? No. Oh, okay. Here's okay. the thing about this card trick. I learned that in a year. Wow. But it took you a year to learn that. It took, it took a year. But then you go and do magic gigs and everyone says, hey, you're the best magician I've ever seen. After a year. After a year. So then all magicians go through this supreme supreme phase of arrogance where they think, oh, I'm the best they've ever seen. Because people say people don't see magic much. Right. Well, so I've never seen to, anything better. Wow, 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 wow. Right. So you feed so, your head. So then you have to have... Uh, uh, a period, and you don't know everybody has this, but you have to have a period when you realize you're not the best magician they've ever seen. <laughs> a humbling moment, a hum if you will. You have to be humbled. <laughs> so that's where I was at 25. I had gone to drama school, and that showed me how tough everything was. You know, I'd done comedy clubs, and that showed me how difficult comedy clubs could be. And I'd broken out of that phase of going, oh, well, I'm the greatest magician they've ever seen. 
Um, so then I was able to go, okay, well, what do I want to do with this thing? Because I, I, I didn't even want to go and, you know, follow that traditional route of working in bar mitzvahs and yep, yep. weddings and whatever. So um, I started a magic-based theater company, which was as terrible as it sounds. Wow. And uh, Is this in London? Yeah. And we were doing this very sort of avant-garde um, emotional magic which, again, is as terrible as it sounds. Right. But during that period, I went to a costume party that my friend had. And um, I said to my sister, do you have a costume to wear? And she said, yes, I have a dragon outfit under my bed. And I <laughs> asked, no more questions, and neither should you, because it's my sister. Who knows why she had a dragon outfit under her bed. So I uh, go to this party in a dragon outfit. and Which, up- by the way, Piff is wearing right now. Yes, I'm here in my natural dragon skin right now. <laughs> uh, I turn up and nobody is in costume. It's just me. Wow. I say to my friend, what What are you doing? She says, well, nobody else turned up. They thought it was a bit childish, so I didn't bother getting dressed up. I'm like, I've just walked across London in a dragon outfit. <laughs> I've got no no other clothes with me. I'm in a dragon outfit. She's like, well, yeah, that kind of sucks to be you right now. So that's how the dragon happened. So then I'm doing this. I'm like at this party, uh, you know, appropriately grumpy for once. And one <laughs> of my friends comes up to me. She says, hey, you should do this in your act. You could be Puff the Magic Dragon. I said, wait, I could be Piff the Magic Dragon. You might have heard of my older brother, Steve. So I came with that line immediately, came with the idea. And I was like, that is a funny idea. It is. And... Uh, at the time, we were doing this sort of these um, these sort of like variety shows with this you know emotional magic stuff, and one one time I I tried doing uh, this piff thing, and immediately I did it, and immediately I was like, this is the future, this is what I do now. It felt right. You just knew it. Yeah, because because um, a dickhead in a dragon outfit is apparently hilarious. <laughs> Whereas Versus without it, the dickhead, dickhead without right, just yeah. a dickhead. So yeah. so so. Uh, uh, the costume really became the backbone of your act. It allows yeah. you. It's almost like the 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 uh, uh, the clown who doesn't have to be himself at all because yeah. you're not a dick in real life. You're no. a good guy. I've been talking to you. Yes. So, yeah. So, so but I am. But so I am. can you be more of a dick in a in a dragon suit than you can not? Yes. It's very difficult to um, punch down when you're uh, dressed as a dragon. Now I should have thought of that because. On my television show, I'm called the biggest asshole on television. Right. People call me that all the time. I got to try some type of a costume to see if I can even be more yeah. of a dick. Maybe a panda bear. <laughs> a panda bear. That's yeah. nice, soft, and cuddly. And I so, think, you know, everybody has the thoughts that they, you know, that they want to say. And um, when I was doing, you know, when I was doing magic before, I just couldn't help but sort of. You know, if somebody drops cards all over the place, it's not their fault because, yeah. you know, why should they learn how to shuffle cards? Whereas, you know, they're kind of ruining my life at that point. So so when you put on the costume and became Piff, mm. did it all start to come together? Yeah. So then you started to do uh, uh, British television. You did a bunch of yeah. shows there. Well. And you started to become more of a brand than yeah. just a magician or a comedian. Yeah. It turned out, in retrospect, there, there are lots of things that I look back on and I go, oh, wow, if only I had planned that. Because that would mean that I could, right. in theory, plan the next thing. Right. But not so easy. It's not so. You just look yeah. at it and go, "Oh yeah, that is a clever idea." 
Yep. You, you just know. do it day by day. You get an idea and you do it. Yeah, so, and it's like a lot of it's accidental, but in retrospect, it turns out to be genius. Yeah. And people go, wow, what a clever idea. And you go, yes. But I just, it just like, you know, I didn't even plan it like this. It just happened. So now you're piff. Yeah. And you're building your comedy. So you're adding more. more, more uh, uh, uh. So I start, right. So I, in the UK, I started at the bottom of the comedy ladder and then cabaret ladder. And I would just work my way up by mm-hmm. doing shows there. I did the Edinburgh Fringe. And when I did the Edinburgh Fringe, I did an hour long show. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this act is funny for like 20, 30 minutes. Right. An hour's tough. An hour's tough. It needs something else. And um, the girl who was running the venue had a chihuahua and we put the chihuahua in the act and it was so funny that the next day I went out and got Mr. Piffles. And Mr. Piffles is sitting on your lap right now. Sitting on my lap right now. He's a... uh, He's a long-haired, white, fluffy chihuahua. Who's is, about as mellow and well-behaved as can be. It's unbelievable. He's incredibly docile. Um, I've had him for nine years now. He's uh-huh. a rescue dog, so he's 11 years old. Um, and he's a, he's a chihuahua, though. So they live to like 18, 19, 20, and then I could probably stuff him and get another four or five years wow. from him. I mean, he could be dead right now. You wouldn't be able to tell. I mean, that is, so, so now that. there's literally nothing, nothing going on there. So did you find that you were more marketable being categorized as a comedian rather than a magician? Well, here's another th- – yes. Because that seems more marketable to me. Well, here's the thing about – again, going back to magicians, you yeah. know, they're, they're, in the, they're in the service industry, and so they're competing against um, – they're not competing by their product. They're competing by um, their service. Mm-hmm. So – it's not like you book um, Joe Bloggs, the magician. You're booking a magician. So then you're into, well, I'm cheaper than this guy. Right. Very I'm good point. This, you know, so you become like you're lost in a sea of thousands. Mm-hmm. And um, there was this. But as a comedian, you're booking a person. You're booking a person. You're booking That's the right. act. That's right. Yeah, you're That's always right. booking the act. Complete opposite of a magician. Exactly. Actually. Yeah. So I always wanted to be booked by the, by my act. And there was this magician who once asked my business card, I didn't have one, and he harangued me for like 20 minutes. You've got to have a business card. It's the most important thing in this business. And I was like, unless people can, go- unless people can see it and Google it Im- immediately, then I've got nothing. Yeah. So like I say, the whole Piff, the Magic Dragon thing was a bit of a fluke, but equally, uh, you know, I ran with it. And now, uh, you know, if you see me on TV, then you can book me. You, could, you know where to go. So now you're pretty darn successful in the United Kingdom. You're doing well. Yeah. And you make a choice to come to America. Yes. Now, it worked out well for the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, there was a little history in that. So did you ever, when you were back at 24 years old and had that humbling experience, what did you think of Las Vegas as an entertainer in the United Kingdom, thousands of miles away? Right. What was your vision and your impressions of Las Vegas back then? I had a I had a girlfriend once, and her parents um, were not in th- were not very thrilled to know that she was dating a magician. And so they sat, you know. After a while, I sat down with them. You I should said, have made her parents disappear, right? <laughs> yeah, I know a guy. Uh, so after a while, I sat down with them, and I said, "You know, guys, what's the issue here? What really is the issue?" And they said, "Well, we're just worried that you're going to become." Uh, successful and you're going to end up with your own show in Las Vegas and I laughed and laughed and and I said let me tell you one thing if I can promise you one thing 
it is that this kind of act will never end up in Las Vegas. And here we are. And here you are. So you started with a three-day residency in Flamingo, right? Now you're up to no, five? No, before that, before that, I started. Oh. So I, I did the UK, and I started to recognize that in the UK, it's a very small market, yep. and you have to change your material every year. And because I developed my own material, then it was taking me two years to get something that was good. So really people, hard to reinvent yourself every right, year. People were sort of seeing it in an unfinished state all the time. And by the time it was got, got good... Then I couldn't do it anymore. Right. So I, re- I realized that I needed to go to somewhere with a much larger market, somewhere that I could um, be in one place and do the same thing over and over again to you know and really hone it. it. Right, right, exactly. So um, uh, I was in Australia doing a show, and this guy came to the show and he said, "I want to talk to you about working in Las Vegas." And I thought, as you do, sure, you know, this is yep. probably bullshit, yep. but. Um, he had conversations with my agent, and it turned out to be a serious thing. And they ended. So, up, was it a producer, or was it one of the casino operators? It was a producer, okay. And they ended up booking me for this show called Vegas Nocturne, which was at the Cosmopolitan yeah. uh, in 2014, and I was a small part of a big show. So, but I signed a ten-year contract as Piff, as Piff, and I had to do at least two years myself. Mm-hmm. So I came over, thinking, okay, I'm going to live here at least two years. So um, I'd already done my due diligence on Las Vegas and gone, this place is great. You know, it's like if you're visiting, then obviously you get a very skewed perspective of it. But I knew people like Penn & Teller, you're huge. uh, Love it here. Yeah, they're they're huge here. But also they were huge helps to me. You know, they were like, I did a TV show with them when I was in 2011. So they gave me a big break and uh, sort of mentored me over the years. Lance has been very successful Lance, here. Yeah. Lance was great to me as well. Yep. Uh, Matt King. Yep. Um, you know, these people like, took time and, and uh, told me about their lives here and what they liked and what, they, what were the advantages and disadvantages. And I was like, this sounds great. And I came over here to live. Uh, and as soon as I got here, I loved it. I was like, this is where I want to be. And then I did that show at the Cosmopolitan for... Six months. And after six months, it closed because it was losing so much money. Mm. So now I'm in Las Vegas with zero prospects because nobody knows who I am right. in America. It's a bit part in the show, right? Right. bit part in the show. Outside Las Vegas, I don't exist. Now, had you done America's Got Talent yet? No. Okay. So I spent a whole year trying to get my own show. Nothing. And then I was like, well, I need some way to get out there and show people who I am. Yep. And uh, eventually I... Stumbled, you know, stumbled into America's Got Talent, which I thought was going to be a disaster. It's interesting. So, so this is the second time in your life that you sort of had a humbling moment. Oh yeah, so to speak. Yeah, and you're in this town. There's stages all over the city. Right. You're trying to get on one of those stages. You can't. So you take a shot. Yeah. And you go for a national television show. Yeah. And so, so uh, were you surprised when you were accepted? Uh, I wasn't surprised I was accepted because, um, you know, they have, you know, they have like a whole bunch of crazy acts, chickens that yep. play pianos yep. and, and whatever, whatever. So, you know, I can see like um, the immediate novelty of, of the dragon, of concert, the dragon right. and the right. dog and whatever. But um, they had a producer there um, who really believed in it. As soon as she saw it, she was like, I want this on the show. She sort of did. She didn't move mountains to get me on it because I was very uh, skeptical about it. 
I went on the show. I did it, and it was a big, big success. That first audition was a big success. Now, and you had said a minute ago that you thought it was going to be a disaster. Yeah. What did you think would happen? I thought I would go out, and um, the judges wouldn't understand it. Gotcha. And and this was, and it would be a and niche thing. Yep. But when I was in the UK, I always thought it would be a funny 10-minute act, but it would be niche. It would be... Right. And then I did this... I was doing a theater tour with... Um, like a variety show, and it was for, a, a ver- I mean, you would call them like an NBC audience, we would call them mm-hmm. like a ITV audience, which is sort right. of like, um, it, it's basically the, uh, the, the mass audience, you know, and I went out in front of this, like, quote-unquote mass audience, and they loved it, and I was like, oh, I think maybe this has got wider appeal, and then I did this Penn and Teller show in the UK, yep. and that, had a big impact that like you came darn close to stumping them too yeah right but i never and they still never quite got it right did they no they never got it right but (laughs) i never really care about winning this stuff uh because i'm just there for the television and the exposure sure sure so um, so america's got talent so i go on so i in the back of my mind i'm thinking well i know that this plays well to the general public you know and maybe just maybe they will you know they'll, they'll give it a shot uh, knowing full well that they could also just you know dismiss it immediately, yep. so I go on, walk on stage. Howard Stern is there. He looks up. He just rolls his eyes at me, and I'm like, "This is perfect," <laughs> because I know that I have like solid jokes coming and all this stuff. So yep. I, I do my act, and within uh, you know within like thirty seconds, a minute, he's he's chuckling away, and Howard's laughing, and yep. Heidi is like just giving me comedy gold you know, with what she's doing. And yep. and so I do this audition and then I go down to the judge's desk because I don't really, you know, I'm tired. I just, fl- I got red eye in. I have no, I don't really watch this show. I have no idea what's going on. So the second you were finished, did you know you did well? Did, were you not sure? Did you sense their reactions were going to well, be good? Yeah, so I finished my act. I go on stage down with them and I'm like messing up. I'm like basically interviewing them about my act. And then I come on stage, I'm all right, I'm going. And they're like, no, no, we have to vote. And then they vote me for, through. And, then, and as soon as I came on stage, I was like, oh, that went pretty well. Um, but again, that's, at that stage, you're still into that unknown because nothing's edited. Right. You know, you can't remember what happened really. And so I was like, well, that seemed to go well. And then they were like, wanted me to come back for the next round. And then, it, and then you know, we had all this stuff with like contracts or whatever. But I do the next round. And that was really tough. The second round was really tough. The audience had been sat there for like 17 acts. Mm. I go on. The audience is dead. I'm like working as hard as I can to get it. I finish my act. And they're judging me. And, I, and, and all of that stuff, I'd always, you know, I didn't really want to be judged by people. So I've always like done stuff like eating or mm-hmm. you know just not paying attention so i'm doing all this and out of the corner of my eye i'm just hearing neil patrick harris talk about something and then he hits the golden buzzer and all this you know gold confetti goes off and uh, i'm like oh my god that was i didn't did not expect that to happen <laughs> so and then when i came off stage after that then i was like i'm set for like the it. next two or three years i'm done it's done. So how did that feel when you went back to your hotel room that night? That was a huge... I mean, I didn't even... I, I, I made them give me a room, uh, my own room, because I had a dog. So yep. I, I had my own little room. So literally, I came off stage, went to my dressing room, and I called up my girlfriend. I was like, uh, I, I've just got us work for the next, you know, three years. Yeah. Uh, and I was like... And it was huge relief, because before then, I literally, you know, left everything in England, 
uh, come here, and I was just burning through my savings, and I was like down to, you know, I didn't really have any cash after that. So you were to do or die. Yeah, it was pretty. pretty it was pretty brutal. You know, my friends. But there's said, a lesson though in all of us, though. I mean, when you believe in something hard enough, you find a way to stretch <laughs> those dollars, stretch more time, right. get to that next city. You just got there somehow. Yeah. And if you had to make it another couple of months, you would have figured that out too. I, th- I think that's true because you know I said to my my friend, uh, you know, I was like, oh, this is not good. You know, I've got enough money. <laughs> and she said, so what's the plan? And I said, well, I guess. In the next six months, I've got to get incredibly famous uh, and start earning thousands and thousands of dollars. So how long from America's Got Talent did a call from Vegas come? Or, or, or was it after? Well, so then I'd done all that stuff. Now, remember, this hasn't aired. And this doesn't air for six months. You start gotcha. doing it. It doesn't air for six months. Okay. So this stuff had just happened, and I knew it was in the bank. Gotcha. So, Meanwhile, you got to survive the next six months. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So I um, got a call from uh, uh, Angela Stabile, who runs um, the ex burlesque show in town in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. ex-comedy. Uh, and, they ran it, they, and they were saying that they wanted to do a show called Ex-Comedy because uh, Vinny Favorito had just left yep. the Flamingo Room. So they, they'd been asked to fill it with this show called Ex-Comedy. They said, did I want to do it? I said, um, so I, came, I went and I did the – they did an audition for the casino, mm-hmm. and I did that. That went well. So they got the gig. And this was like in maybe May, I think. Um, and I said, um, yes, I'll do it. And then I had all these demands because I always think if you don't have any cars, you should play them twice as hard. I agree. <laughs> so uh, one of the demands was that I can do anything from 10 to 30 minutes depending on what I wanted to do. So so that was an envelope of time that you could brand yourself, in essence. Right. So then I started – so immediately I said, well, I'm doing 30 minutes. And they said, what? And I said, oh, do you remember that I said I wanted to so I'm doing 30 minutes. Now, fortunately – So you're a pretty tough negotiator. Yeah, I'm good at, I'm good at contracts, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so fortunately, it, um, the show opened around the time that America's Got Talent kicked off. So now – it's perfect. Everyone's coming to, sh- to, the, to the show to see me. Couldn't have been better timing. No, and I was opening the show, and um, I got bumped to closing the show because people were fed up with you know, the audience being like, all right, we're done now, after I'd left. So, um, <laughs> so I, I started closing the show. So it was great. So, um, and, and that was Monday. No, that was Thursday through Sunday, that show, four days a week. So then America's Got Talent comes out. I sign with uh, an agent. The agent starts booking me doing weekends in comedy clubs. Mm-hmm. So I ring up Angela and I say... So you're doing improvs, uh, uh, laugh, yeah, yeah. laugh Factory, those kind of venues. Yeah, yep. sort of five shows a weekend. Yep. And, yep. Um, That's a grind. Well it, well, it wasn't for us because it can be, but it wasn't for us because we just blew up and we were just selling out the clubs like crazy. That's great. So, you know, it's very easy to work hard when... Uh, there's that demand to because it's just like very and the audience loves you and it's motivating. Audience and inspiring, loves you know right? you're making money. It's, yep. it's easy. Yep. So we were doing these clubs and um, I said to Angela, I said, well, I can't do Thursday through Sundays anymore, but what about doing Monday through Wednesdays uh, on the dark nights and we'll do the Piff the Magic Dragon show? And uh, she is she's great. She's just a real. Um, you know, go-getter and a believer, and uh, she was like, yep, let's make it happen. So we just started doing that, these three shows, and I've always, you know, I was like, 
I hadn't worked for a year. And I love doing the shows. Doing the shows is not the work to me. That's Mm -hmm. the easy bit. Everything else is a nightmare. I hate it with every fiber in my body. But I love doing the shows so much that I'm happy to put in the the work. So I always want to do a show every day. I always, you know, I'm happy to do two, whatever it is. I'm happy to do whatever I can. If I can sell the show, I'll do the show. So doing seven nights a week to me is no problem. Um, So I was doing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We'll get a red eye somewhere, do Thursday, Thursday through Sunday at a club, come back, do the show on Monday through Wednesday. Wow. And we did that for a year. And and the show started building in, in Las Vegas. Yeah, so you're building your residency here at the same yeah. time. Yeah. And at the same time, the ex-comedy show started struggling, and eventually they ended up closing it. So um, we then went to four nights a week. And then um, last year, we uh, we went to doing five nights a week i don't even know how we did this actually but anyway we ended up doing five nights a week um so now we do sunday through thursday and then we do friday saturday and this year it's much easier because we do theaters now gotcha so of course bigger venues yeah because you're a big star now well we're chipping away yeah yeah so now we do theater so yeah so so this weekend i'll be in boulder on friday and wichita on saturday and then i'm back here on sunday how many weekends do you take off we don't take anything off. So you're working 52 weeks yeah, a year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, I did that for a number of years. You'll slow down at some point. Yeah, It's exactly. going to get to you. We'll slow down at some point. Yeah. But, uh, you know, not, not right now. So what is different about a Las Vegas audience compared to others? And I guess that's more of a comparison to theaters than comedy clubs. Yeah. I think, um, you know, comedy clubs were crazy for us because we were bringing the audience to clubs. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times when you do comedy clubs, they're just there to see any show, and they're so just there to laugh. It can be it can be a struggle, you know. You have to sort of win them over. Whereas whereas we've always brought our audience to comedy clubs, so comedy clubs were kind of easy. Vegas, um, usually it's fine, but in the summer, it or weekends, it can get tricky because then they're then you're like one of the the other things they're doing. You know, they're coming to Vegas, they're staying at a hotel, they're going out for dinner, right. they're going to a club, and they're also going to a show. Yep. So you're not their, you're not the event of their week. You're part Whereas, of it. Right. When you go out on tour, you're the event. Right. In Las Vegas, you're another thing they're doing. So if they haven't paced themselves, even if they want to be there, yep. then they may just, like, uh, you know, fall off the couch. The other thing is, is that uh, it's a gambling town, so you mm-hmm. never know whether they're up or down. Right, with their attitude is when right. they come in. If they've just lost, you know, $20,000, then they're not uh, ready to laugh. Yeah. But um, I want to ask you a deep question. Yeah. Back when you were 24 or during that struggle when you were running out of your savings and stuff here in Vegas, when you'd go to sleep at night and you're laying in your bed and you're thinking about it and you got some pressure at those times, you got no money, you're oh, struggling. Yeah. With, what was it that kept you motivated? What dream was um, it? Was it? Was it? Because you, because you obviously believed in something right. to keep going. When I was a kid, all I wanted to do was not work. That was the dream. When I was a kid, I was like, I just love lazing around the house. <laughs> so I was always that. I just hate like working like a nine to five job. Yeah. I don't ever want to do that. And then, um, and that was why I got into magic. And then magic became that nine to five job. And I was like, I have to find a way to get yeah. out of this. And now that I found this, I love doing it. But, um. Even and I don't think and, and the reality is like when you don't have work or now, uh, 
it's still the same level of pressure because now the pressure is how do you keep it going? Right. And there's an expectation now. Now you're piffed the man. Right. There's an expectation of yeah. you. Yeah. And so you have to raise the bar as the audience's expectation raises of you as well. Exactly. And yeah. that's tough in this town because in theory, your residency could be going on 20, 25 years from now in this city. Yeah. That's how long it runs. So, yeah. So how do you reinvent yourself all the time uh, 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 a little bit? Because you don't want to change who you are in this town because the branding is important. People want to come see Piff. But you you, you got to upgrade what you do. So my next question is you have your set. You have your act. When you step out on stage, do you mix it up in the moment? Or do you, do you pretty much stay to the plan that you've put together? Um, well, one of the nice things about magic is you've got, you've got like a destination, but you don't but then when you get somebody on stage to help, they can change the route that you right. use to get there. So it's very improv actually yeah, when you're up because, there. I mean, and it, because it's just by the nature of like somebody not being able to follow instructions or whatever they're doing, you know. Yep. Um, so there's a lot of improv in the shows, which means that when, you, when I'm performing the tricks, they feel fresh each night yep. um, to me. Well, you're very interactive. Yeah. So you pull the audience really into the show, which yeah. I guess gives it a personality each night of its own. I think so. People always say to us, you know, is this set up because of the situations that we can find each night? Um, but is it? Is it? No, it would be way too expensive. Yeah, well so, said. You yeah. can't afford to have another five we or six actors on the payroll to we do can't something. can't afford it, no. It's funny, on my show, people always say, oh, those are actors. That's scripted. That's not real. Yeah. First of all, we can't afford 10 more actors. Secondly, how do you find somebody in the street that can do that so well? Yeah, that's <laughs> the other thing. You can always tell when things are, are fake. Set up. You know, we have a mo- bit at the moment that we're working on where, where we get a somebody delivers like an Uber Eats or a Postmates, and that's somebody in our crew. And to me, that feel legitimate. It's impossible because it's like <laughs> the audience can smell that this of is not. Nice, of course. You know. but, um, so, so where do you go from now? So your dream was to be a magician, a comedian. Yeah. You know, you, 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 you've got a residency in Las Vegas, the entertainment capital world. I can tell you and the audience this. You are really respected in this town. People love you here. Yeah, no, it's going well they, here. They, yeah. they, you know, they love you as a person. They love you as an entertainer. Where do you go? For, this is a high point. Yes. Where do you go from here? This is the peak. Yeah, but you don't want to peak at your age. You're too young. Well, I'm, I know, but this is the problem with show business. You know, there was a book by Herman Hesse years ago. I think it was called Sid Arthur. I forget what it was, or, or Narcissus and Goldman. And it was a story of an artist who painted his masterpiece at 14. Right. And at 14, he says, that's it. I can never make a painting better than this. What do I do now? And his rest of his life, you know, was completely fucked up. Yeah. So, so uh, 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 obviously, you don't want to peak too soon, but you have so much talent. And you're so, I'm going to use the word retrospective about your own performance. That, well, that I think that there's a, Piff has a lot of years in him. Hopefully. <laughs> Maybe not the dog, but this one. Yeah. Um, well, every time, you know, I always think of it like a golf swing. Like, and you're, you know, when you hit that perfect swing, then, um, the, the, the next swing you take is not as perfect. Yeah. And then, then maybe you hit a duff shot. And then you hit another perfect swing. So that's how I feel about the shows, that some nights I really nail it, and some nights it's like, oh, that didn't quite work. Uh, then I've got new material that I'm all, you know, ideas are always popping in my head. Mm-hmm. And so we always, I've always feel like I've got a backlog of material to get through. And then... And I can say, you like trying new things. I yeah, can I like, see that. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 like, uh, I, like, I like that. And then um, the other thing, the main thing is, is that I want to make... A lot of the stuff that I developed, the ideas, I only get to do 75 minutes on stage. 
mm-hmm. you know, and we do a different set on the road. But even so, that's still only like uh, two and a half hours of material. So th- there's a whole bunch of stuff that we have that, um, you know, and when you create material, you want to put it out there. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that I want to get out there. And, I, and the sort of way to do it will be to a TV show. So we're, we've been uh, developing TV stuff for the last year. Um, I've been working with Penn from Penn and Teller on yep. stuff. We shot a special and we're shooting a bunch of uh, extra content for that at the moment. So that's the the next thing is to try and push into that because, um, I mean, and that's the other reality is that is that as much as I love doing what we're doing now, then in order for that to keep going, it has to be backed up with television. Yeah, it does. You know, or whatever, or whatever the new thing is as it moves right. into the See, internet. I was lucky because I didn't get into television until I was in my 50s. Right. And then everything happened after television. You build a lot of things around that television platform because yeah. you, you reach so many millions of people. So, so uh, uh, here you are in Las Vegas. Where are you this weekend? You're in Boulder? And Boulder, where? Colorado, Wichita, Kansas. Yeah. And, and then, then next week, back in Vegas. Next week, I might. Well, I'm not. I, I might do a secret project in the UK. Ooh. Uh, but I'm still not even sure that's going to happen. But um, I'm not. Uh, if I don't do it, then I'll just stay in Vegas. I'm if guessing it, a I'm lot of a lot of visitors from the UK. I'm guessing come to see your show. Yeah, because they know you obviously from seeing you on, uh, on yeah. British television. And the more you do in the UK, the more tickets you sell in Vegas. Yeah, which I mean, is great because we love we love people bringing English pounds and spending them in Nevada. That's a oh, wonderful yeah. thing. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Penn and Teller, that's the reason they toured the UK is to sell tickets for their Vegas show. At the end of a show, two things happen. You get your applause. Yeah. And you get a check. Yeah. Which means more to you? Um, The the check, because without the check, you can't keep doing the show. Smart. It's funny because I've often said at the end of my TV show, I get a hug and a check. Right. And I've often said the hug means more to me. In fact, it's when you really think about it, you're right. No money, no entertainment, no money, no charity, no money, no nothing. No, nothing. And I've been there. I've been without the money. Right. And I wasn't I wasn't able to do shows. Right. And then the other thing is. So the applause without the money didn't go so far. Well, no, I mean, and you can't get the next applause because you can't afford to get Get there. there. When I first came off America's Got Talent in the UK. It takes – you do a gig and it takes anywhere from 30 to 90 days, sometimes even longer to get paid. Mm-hmm. So you're always working three to six months uh, ahead. So when I came here, you know, I I go on America's Got Talent. I, I finished that and I literally – you know, I, so, I sold my car to just to like earn, have some enough money to wow. eat. So, you know, I didn't, didn't have any money. I have like, Wow, that's how tight it was. Yeah, it was tight. I was like – you know, I was down to like you know a few dollars in my bank. And that weekend, I had to go to um, Sa- uh, oh, the Texas place, San, San Antonio. Antonio. San Antonio. So that was the first weekend. And I said to my agent, I said, listen, um, I've got six months of plane tickets to book. And I don't, and you know, hotels to buy. I don't have that money. I, I just don't have it. And they said, oh, aren't you working like this weekend? I was like, yeah, but you know, how long is that going to take? to?" Yeah. And they said, they'll give you the check when you leave. And I said, no way. No way is this going to happen. <laughs> and this is the thing about working in America that makes my job possible because when you're a magician, you have huge overheads. Yep. You know, we have staff members, we have agents, publicists, equipment. managers, yep. equipment, yep. props, dogs. Yep. <laughs> huge payroll. So in this country, when you do a show, they give you a check. Yeah. And that's what uh, means that you, I can keep going. That's the American way. We call it COD, cash on delivery. Cash on delivery. It's very effective here, I think. It really is. <laughs> so the most important thing is a check. And uh, and then, of course, you know, 
the the equally important thing is the audience because without them you don't get the check next you know, time. Of course, of course. Yeah. You know the fact of the matter is you're right, and and the bigger the check. Uh, uh, the bigger success, it is unfortunately a barometer of success in our industry is how big the check is that we get. And also – It does mean something. And also it means that we can take bigger risks in the material that we're developing because not everything has to work. You know, when like right. it's hand-to-mouth, it's like, oh, I can't, I can't try this new thing because I don't have – you know, I need to uh, put that money into – Well, you don't my, have the credibility yeah. in a brand to lean on. When there's right. a bad when there's a bad bit in the show, right? Exactly. Now you yeah. do. Now we, we do. Right, because you know you can recover in those situations too. Yeah, and also you know that it's just repetition, and it's gonna it will it will get good over time. Yeah, you know that thing we just did, we just did this uh, spot on America's Got Talent, the Champions thing, and that trick took like eighteen months to get good. So for the first six months, it was kind of pretty hairy. So I got uh, – this has been a lot of fun, buddy. And, and, you know, there's a lot to your story that my listeners should appreciate. One, you can achieve your dreams even when you get through the droughts of no money and this and that. Piff is a great example of that. Also, Piff, you're a great example of stepping out of the box. Let's face it. A guy comes in and says, you want me to put on my dragon costume? Puts on his dragon costume, sits down with his doggy, starts to – you have no problem stepping out of the box. No you problem. Are, and – but in American business, if we don't step out of the box, we're the same as everybody else. And it takes courage to do that. Well, so, only, you can only book one magic dragon. You can. That's you right. Can, you can book a lot of magicians, but you can only book one magic dragon. Yeah. I compliment you for your courage, buddy. Well, thank you. I mean, it means a lot. The courage that you had to create your brand, you know, to step out of your box like you do, to try new things like you do, to come to a market like Las Vegas that can be very unfriendly. Get on stage here, win this market over. You are a very courageous entertainer. And if I were to pick a great word for you, yeah, you're funny, yeah, you're creative, you're, you're a great magician, but you're a courageous entertainer. And, and you know, th- th- that's a real accomplishment. There's a lot of magicians out there, but they're not as courageous as you. Wow. And, and that's a powerful thing. So I want to ask you a last question. I've yeah. never asked anybody this before. All right. And I thought of it while we were just talking about what's more important, the audience or the check. I'm going to give you a sentence. I want you to finish it for me. All right. Money doesn't buy everything, but it does buy more problems. <laughs> <laughs> that's your answer? Yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> it was great to have you. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, if buddy. nobody has seen uh, uh, Piff the Magic Dragon, please check him out on YouTube. When you come to Vegas, you got to see his show. If you're in Boulder, see him this weekend or Wichita. It's really, really worth it. It's a great show. It's out of the box. Piff, you are funny as hell, man, and a great magician. And I still can't figure out how we got that three of clubs. We'll be right back. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. As you rev up your engines with the start of NASCAR racing season, Podcast One is your pit stop for the best car podcasting around. Team up with Adam Carolla and friends on CarCast as they explore all aspects of the automotive space. Then drive into the pit stop to talk motorsports with Shift and Steer. Then speed to the finish line and Spike's Car Radio as comedy writer Spike Ferriston hosts a roundtable with his celebrity friends about all things cars. Download CarCast, Shift and Steer, and Spike's Car Radio every week on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Shut it down. All right, John, new Shut week. Shut it down. New callers. Let's get in it. First up, we have Ben from Hamilton, Virginia. Uh, looks like we got a big bar rescue fan here. How are you, man? I'm all right, John. How about yourself? Good. It's nice to talk with you. 
so, problem. So, you know, we all have these challenges in life. You know that, Ben, and you have yours certainly. And I just wanted to give you a hats off for fighting and beating those challenges. And, and I want you to know that, that you have my respect because anyone who can overcome a physical challenge like you do every day is worthy of a hero's medal to me. So I just wanted to start by telling you that and, and how much I appreciate you taking the time to call me, Ben. So you're a big bar rescue fan. Yeah. Have you watched them all? Do you have a favorite episode? Actually, I've, been, I've watched it um, for a couple of years now, and I actually liked your um, uh, episode down in, um, I think, Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico it was. Yeah, the Operation Puerto Rico, where I rescued the uh, baseball field and the basketball court and the whole town down there. Yeah, I really liked that one. It seemed like the people were real nice, and you had a lot of awesome people come down there to help you as well, which was cool. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty actually amazing to call people like that and have them come when I called. And, and you know, uh, uh, you learn a lot about people when you call them and you ask them to donate their time to another cause, which might not directly involve them. And, you know, I look at Bethany and Bernie Williams and Mark Cuban uh, uh, and Luis Guzman, and it was amazing that they all came down and they helped. Boy, I got to tell you, you know, Cuban was painting basketball courts and J.J. Berea was painting with him. So it was it was a lot of fun. So, you know, Operation Puerto Rico taught me so much, Ben, because, you know, when you pick up the phone and you call people to donate their own time, which is a big donation for some people, it's easier to write a check than it is to give a few days of your time. But, you know, Mark Cuban came down, Bethany Franco came down, Luis Guzman came down, Bernie Williams came down. It was it, – nothing has ever felt better for me than that episode, Ben. That was really uh, something that was very personally gratifying to me. And I know you had a question for me about who were my role models. Is that what you wanted to talk about today? Uh, yeah, I actually did have a question for you. Sure. What um, is it? I was just wondering who your role model was and who – I guess someone you looked up to in your life that – made you who you are today you know it's interesting probably my biggest role model is very personal to me and that's my grandfather you know was was a real role model to me when my grandfather passed away people actually put ads in the new york times uh, mourning his death uh, that's how many people that he touched in his life and my grandfather taught me something that was really powerful ben that at the end of your life how thick your checkbook is is not nearly as important as how thick your phone book is and that was a lesson that really, really stuck with me. You know, other people that, that have been really inspirational to me, of course, are, are, you know, business people like Howard Hughes has really inspired me. I've read every book on Howard Hughes. You know what's fascinating about Howard Hughes? He invented a rivets for airplanes, collapsible landing gear. He was owns patents and was an incredible innovator in aircraft. He also invented the uplift bra, believe it or not, Ben, and patented that. And then he produced movies. So I thought that he was an incredible man the way he went at different things and was so successful at it. Martin Luther King is another one who's a mentor of mine who, you know, when I read about and study him, he's, he's a huge inspiration to me in overcoming adversity, uh, uh, even when you know it's endangering to yourself. Uh, uh, you know, that speaks to a level of integrity that unfortunately a lot of us don't have these days. But those are the ones that come to mind that are important mentors to me. And uh, uh, I think they mentor a lot of people as well, too, because they're, they're, they're pretty well-known names. But if there was one person who impacted my life more than anyone else, it would be my grandfather. And, and you know, I live with uh, the hope of making him proud every day. And that's a very personal thing for me. Anyway, it was nice to talk to you, Ben. 
All right, John, moving on. We have Kevin from Tucson, Arizona. He's an E-7 in the United States Air Force. Oh, hey. How's it going? Good, man. How are you? I'm doing well. First of all, thanks for your service, buddy. Uh, I know you're an E-7 in the Air Force. I appreciate that. I am. I am. So So, so let me caveat that by this is a a personal, these are my personal opinions and, and nothing you know, to represent the Air Force or anything like that. Oh, of course. I I, I appreciate you saying that, but I still have to uh, uh, offer you a hats off and my respect for your service. And an, uh, Thank you. Uh, and an E-7 is a man of authority. So you've obviously have a very disciplined life and you've worked hard uh, to get where you are, haven't I, you? I have, I have tried to, yes. So, so uh, uh, that's what I respect for, buddy, the status that you've achieved, uh, whether it's in the service or elsewhere, it's still worthy of respect. So what do you want to talk about today? So I, I, I'm a big fan of talking about leadership and, and motivation. And um, I think right now we're in sort of a weird generation place where we have, uh, you know, young leaders who are very smart, very savvy. And then we have old leaders who are uh, kind of set in their ways. But I think we're missing the gap. Yeah, I agree I, with you. And I think we're we're missing we're missing the bridge between that young and older leadership to make effective leaders. I completely agree I know, with you. Uh, and, and I think from what I do, and and I know you, you probably know business standpoint, right? Yeah. Um, where where we're we're kind of missing the we're missing the mark, really. We are, and you know, when I take a look at the younger people that are entering the workforce, it's it's. Uh, uh, I think it's even more alarming as we go through it. And I try to pick it apart myself, Kevin. Try to find the reasons for it. I think social media has something to do with it, and I also think that that people, you know, due to social media today, there's something I call immediate gratification. So if you post a picture right. of yourself, you know, in the in the the worst you've ever looked in your life, somebody's going to post, "Ah, you look great today, Kev. Looking good, buddy." So there's this there's this BS gratification that these young people get every day in social media, right? Whether they do well or not, they get their likes, they get their comments, they get their data boys, you look great today, you're a hero, congratulations, well done. So they have this false gratification that happens so quickly. And when you think about yourself, Kev, when you started, it took time for you to get where you are, didn't it? promotion right. after promotion right. and you knew it wasn't going to happen years. overnight yeah. that's right so you guys like you and i know this isn't going to happen overnight we're prepared to invest years into our future the new generation doesn't look at it quite that way you know and some do and i'm not generalizing and i don't mean to insult anybody body by this but there's a great majority of the younger group that needs an immediate gratification because that's what they've been programmed to receive so if you don't promote them quick enough they're gone if they don't learn quick enough, they bail. If they don't get you know that leadership role quick enough, they bail. And as an end result, the younger leaders don't have the experience and substance that the more mature leaders do because they're not committing the time to their own growth. Do you agree with that? Well, they, I I agree. I I think they've never failed, and and it, the younger generation is quick to uh, experience a failure or a tribulation or trial and and kind of turn and run. And uh, the older, the older leadership, I mean, we've all failed. Everybody can see, you know, you're always going to fail. But you don't bail uh, when you fail. On, you keep going. That's it the depends on the direction you fail in, right? That's right. You but, say, well, I'm not going to do that again. That was, that was terrible. Um, and and kind of, okay, now I know not to do that. Or now I know that this isn't going to work. Or you, you might fail when, when it's leading people. Um, you might say, hey, this is my idea. And you kind of get it shot down and then you kind of go from there. And, yeah. and well, that's not going to work for this group of people or, or that. But I think... Um, you're correct in the social media aspect with instant gratification and, and that can work and it can be a, a, 
a thing that hurts too. Yeah, it does. Some people need that pat on the back. Yeah, I, and some I, people I, need the 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 instant gratification. Right, and, and and you know we can pat people on the back as they go through their you know their lives, and there are certain employees that we call high maintenance that require a lot of pats on the back, and I get that, but you know. I'm one of the believers, and, and you know, I disagree with a lot of management books. I don't believe leadership is created. I believe leadership is is a born trait, not a skill. And you know, you look at right. it, it, you know the, the 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 you know the fairy tale characters like uh, Pied Piper, and you know he he walked people off cliff. If you look at the greatest entrepreneurs in history, the great leaders, so many of them walked their people off a cliff. But they believed in them more than they believed in the business plan itself. So leadership is people congregating around you, wanting to be around you, wanting to listen to you, wanting to do what you say. Even if they don't agree with it, they do it anyway because they believe. Leadership is evangelical, dare I say. And the greatest leaders of all, you got it. And, and, you know, the greatest leaders of all have an evangelical type of element to them that causes people to want to flock around them and believe in what they do. And that's great leadership. And I agree with you, Kev. You don't find leaders like that so much anymore. They're not being made or created like they used to when we were young. But I think leaders like that either have it when they're 10 years old or not. My daughter's a great example. When my daughter was 10 years old and I sent her to daycare, they used to call her the little general because she lined everybody <laughs> up. And, and to, So even at 10 years old, she was that way. So I think leadership right. is something that happens at a very young age, you know, when, when we're, we're formulating who and what we are before we're 10 years old. And I think the changes in society are changing that a little bit. And it's unfortunate because right. without great leaders, right. we're not going to develop great people or a great society. And I'm sure you agree with that. Right. And then you have to be a, a great follower as well as a great leader. So we, we pick and choose who we, who we follow in terms of uh, our, our morals and goals, and that's that charismatic side of who you can align your charisma with. You can't – charisma isn't something you earn. It's not something given to you. It's something you have. You that's either correct. have or you don't. That's correct. And um, if you take charisma and, and you match it with experience and you match it with knowledge, that's when you have a leader who can lead. But you know what? Guys boom. like you, as much as you're a good follower, you're not going to be a good follower for a leader you don't believe in. And, and right. we all have right. to remember that. And it's not reasonable for me to expect people – to, to be loyal to me when I'm not being a good leader to them. It's a two way street. It is. Yep. And, and you have to, and, and you have to have the hard conversations with those people that, and I think that's one of the things we avoid with, which falls in that social media trap. It's so easy to say how you feel, but not have the real conversation of here's how we get better together, or here's how maybe we should go our separate ways and, and leave from different, you know, ends of the street, but we're still on that same that same ultimate path, you know. Look, political uh, correctness is an enemy to all growth <laughs> and development. Because if you and I can't right. disagree, how do we teach each other? Right? If I can't right. show and, and anger we may, we may disagree. We may disagree. We should disagree with two different people. We have to disagree on some things. So disagreement right. is a given in life. You know, you could hate the shoes right. that I'm wearing. <laughs> you could love them. So I mean we all right. disagree. The point is how do we live in disagreement? That's the trick to our society. Living in agreement is so freaking easy. Living in disagreement is hard. And that's when great leaders step in. Great leaders can get people who have different beliefs and give us all a common goal, a common objective, and send us all in the same direction. That's what great leadership is, buddy. But i got to run to my next call, Kevin. Great to talk, and, and yeah. thank you again for your service. And, and uh, <laughs> let's keep looking for those great leaders together. 
I appreciate your call. Thank you so much. I crossed 50% of my bucket list off right there. <laughs> Take care, buddy. Well, those are some great calls this week. It's always fun for me. Listen, I'd really love it if you'd be on the show. You can challenge me, argue with me, disagree with me, agree with me, whatever you like. But the more challenging, the better. Just send an email to podcast at johntaffer.com, podcast at johntaffer.com. You know, I love doing this podcast every week. That's why I do it, honestly. I love your audience calls. I love the chance to talk to you. And I love talking to my guests. Next week's guest is particularly interesting to me. His name is Derek Stevens. He owns the D in Las Vegas. Derek comes from Detroit, was actually in the automotive supply business, came to Vegas, built a casino, and he's now completely redeveloping downtown Las Vegas. He's going to be the next Steve Wynn of Las Vegas. So I'm really excited to talk to him, learn some business principles, take a look into the future of entertainment, and that's all next week on my No Excuses podcast. And I'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review. 